From Audio Boom comes Covert, a new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows. Fifteen seconds. Guidance is internal. Ten, nine, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. Five, four, three, two. One, two, three, four, five, five, four, three, two, one. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. Hello again, and thank you for joining us on the astronomy podcast, Space Nuts. My name's Andrew Dunkley, your host, and joining us, as always, from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, Fred Watson. Hello, Fred. Good day, Andrew. How are you going? I'm very well. And you? <laughs> I'm all right, thanks. I was just lost for words then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not a very good thing in this kind of business. No. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, Fred, today we're going to uh, talk about uh, a few fascinating things, things uh, that the Earth is not slowing down as fast as we thought it would in terms of its rotation, and you can explain why it is slowing down, but it's got something to do with water. And we've got a strong focus again on Mars. Mars is the centre of attention at the moment with uh, recent probes arriving on the planet with success and failure combined. But uh, some other interesting things about Mars, um, the possibility of um, microbial life having existed. There seems to be some, for want of a better term, evidence that some formations on the planet may have been formed by or assisted to be formed by microbial life. And uh, there was doubt over whether or not they would um, send that rover to Mars. But uh, the Europeans have, uh, have all gone, yep, we're going to do it. It's going to happen. Yeah cheering crowds. But first, let's talk about uh, why the world is rotating and not slowing down as fast as we thought it would or should or is. <laughs> so I think you and I <laughs> talked about the slowdown before. <laughs> yeah, we have in the past. It's, um, it's, you know, it's a good story for the end of the year when things are slowing down generally. Uh, but yes, the Earth's rotation has slowed down we know that we we can see its effect now now that we're blessed with atomic clocks that um, give us very accurate timekeeping uh, we have to periodically insert a leap second into our time in order to keep atomic clocks and the earth's rotation in sync so that tells us you know we we, we know from from uh, from the since the time that we've had atomic clocks that the earth's rotation is slowing um what's interesting though is that exactly as you said it's not slowing quite as fast as people thought it should um, and what has happened and the reason why we're talking about this is that uh, some scientists in the UK in fact two of them are people I know well they're former colleagues of mine in the nautical almanac office which was um, um, where I started my career in government astronomy oh, wow. um, they um, they uh, the, the, these scientists have looked at records of eclipses and other astronomical phenomena dating back to 720 BC. And so what they've been able to do from this is, is plot out what the actual slowdown of the length uh, of the rotation of the Earth is in terms of the, uh, the increase in the length of the day. 
And they get a value uh, for that of um, an average change uh, of the day increasing by, wait for it, 1.8 milliseconds every century. Right. So that's, um, yeah, you sound underwhelmed there. Well, it seems, it seems insignificant, but you're going to tell me it's not. Well, it's not, no, because um, if you don't do anything about it, that quickly builds up into a, a, a you know, a, a loss of synchronization between clocks and the and the rotation of the Earth. And before you know where you are, the seasons are all out of step with where we think they should be in the calendar, and um, and you get general chaos. Uh, so what what's uh, so it is important, uh, but what is I guess more important about this is the the scientific. Um, information that this is giving us about things in connection with the Earth itself. So the evidence from um, from these eclipses and what we call occultations, which are when the moon passes in front of or hides another celestial object, usually a star, but sometimes an asteroid or a planet, uh, they're called occultations because the word uh, occult means to hide, uh, so that the, the moon does this. And that they've been very accurately timed, really, since the invention of the telescope. Uh, so that goes back 400 years. And then you've got these eclipse observations that go back to 720 B.C., um, and by combining them, these scientists have got this uh, this evidence that the uh, the rotation, the average slowdown is 1.7. Sorry, I beg your pardon, 1.8 milliseconds per century. But we have other information which comes from observations of the moon, um, uh, observations of the distance of the moon, which you can make very accurately by bouncing lasers of the uh, retro reflectors that were left on the moon's surface by Apollo astronauts. Uh, combining that and combining uh, evidence that comes from satellites in orbit around the Earth uh, says that the slowdown should be uh, 2.3 milliseconds per century, ah. uh, which is half a millisecond per century more. So that um, that figure of the 2.3 milliseconds per century is basically the effect that the moon is having on slowing down the earth the moon, the moon raises tides on the earth those act uh, as a braking mechanism on the earth and in fact the energy of that is transferred to the moon and so we know that the moon causes the earth to slow down hmm. but it seems that the earth the moon causes the earth to slow down by more than what we actually observe when you look at all these uh, these ancient observations. And so you've got this half a millisecond per century, effectively an acceleration in the Earth's motion. Uh, and that is the mystery. So this has uncovered uh, something that we do not as yet understand. We've got a fairly good idea what it's caused by, but um, but this half second, half millisecond per century uh, um, acceleration of the rotation of the Earth is unexpected and that's why this is interesting okay now we're basing this on data that dates back to the babylonians right indeed okay so i'm thinking they used a windows abacus instead of an apple macintosh abacus <laughs> and therein lies the problem but on that's... a serious note <laughs> i mean they, they didn't have the technology then so could there be inaccurate inaccuracies that we're not accounting for or don't even know about um, no, um, because when you amass all this stuff together, it's quite overwhelming, the amount of data. Uh, and all, all you need, actually, uh, you don't need a time for this eclipse. You simply need to know 
um, that the place on the Earth's surface was eclipsed in order to be able to uh, in order to be able to do this calculation. Right. Um, in other words, could, because the the uh, moon's shadow across the Earth's surface is so narrow. If a place experiences an eclipse, and that's all the record needs to say, then you can actually um, feed that into the calculation. And you get this really strong um, uh, average value of 1.8 milliseconds per century. So the, the, um, basically the, uh, the bottom line seems to be that it is things to do with the Earth itself rather than the, the pull of the moon on the Earth that are causing uh, this discrepancy. And what people are suggesting... Uh, two things. First of all, the fact that um, 11,000 years ago, the Earth was just coming out of an ice age mm. and a lot of ice was melting. And that means that um, the mass of the material on the surface of the Earth was being re redistributed. So uh, the weight of the ice pushing down on the on the um, polar caps of the Earth, that's released when you've got uh, uh, this major melting 11,000 years ago. And what that does is causes a change in the shape of the Earth that's big enough to affect its rotation. Uh, that's one thing. And the other is the interaction between material down at the bottom of the Earth's mantle, which is a couple of thousand kilometres below our feet. Uh, that's more or less where the core of the Earth, the Earth's iron core, starts. And there is thought to be an interaction between those two as well. Uh, so these two things together are probably what causes the discrepancy. Uh, so as I said, it, it, it's interesting that these ancient observations, it, this brings together um, you know, archaeology as well as uh, the, the, the most up-to-date science. But when you look at all those, what you're finding out about is the shape and, and mechanism of the Earth itself rather than, rather than um, uh, anything to do with timekeeping. And I think that's a really neat piece of science. It is indeed. And I've thought of another factor, and this is my incredible anti-astronomy brain working here, but uh, we have spoken in the past about the fact that the Moon is moving away from the Earth gradually, and so one wonders if that reduces the influence the moon is having on the tidal effect and thus altering the calculations. Um, in fact, it's the, uh, the tidal effect that causes the moon to move away. Ah. From. So that is how you know that the moon's breaking effect is 2.3 milliseconds. Okay. per century so, so i've actually yeah. come up with the opposite answer to reality yeah yeah no it's anti-astronomy it is amazing though yeah really interesting i just love the way these uh, these problems surface and then we've got to spend decades trying to figure it out <laughs> i think that's well great. in this case that's right because uh, you know in in some ways one of the least um well-known parts of the universe is is the the earth under our feet uh, because we we can find out a lot about the internal structure of, of the earth from seismology and things of that sort but when it comes to the details and this is merging on the details here or verging on the details uh, then it, it, it it's really difficult to to actually uh, work out what's going on and so this sheds helps to shed some light on that very good all right you're listening to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Fred Watson. Roger, you're live, sir, here also. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, we're going to head off to my favourite place in the entire universe, and that is Mars. And we've got a couple of things that are happening in Mars that we want to talk about. But you and I have discussed many times in the past of the likelihood of discovering life or evidence there was life in some part of perhaps the solar system uh, in the not-too-distant future. 
and it's a big call, but uh, there is some evidence that has now been discovered that could suggest a biosignature of some kind, and that is some formations on Mars that look like they could have only been formed with the assistance of microbial life, which is only comparable with something that they've seen on Earth. Have I got that basically correct? Absolutely. In fact, you've you've done the story there and then. Okay. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. On... <laughs> yeah, good to talk to you. <laughs> no, that, that's absolutely right. So this goes back to um, um, the Spirit rover, which is now defunct, of course. Spirit was... Uh, uh, um, actually a touchdown on Mars's surface, I think it's 12 years ago when it, when it got going. Um, it um, did a fine job of exploring a place called Gusev Crater, uh, which is um, uh, in Mars's equatorial regions, uh, and then got bogged uh, in uh, one of the sand dunes, and because it was tipped over so its solar panels were facing away from the sun, its batteries ran out it and it became defunct. That happened a few years ago. It's it's, um, it's uh, companion uh, spacecraft, though, which was called Opportunity. That's still going. It's nowhere near where Spirit was, but it's still producing fantastic data. Yeah, and, and just there's a sideline. How far past its use-by date is it now? Well, <laughs> the use-by date was 90 days, and yeah. this is 12 years later. That's so amazing. They build these things to last. Yeah, it's yeah. fabulous stuff. Um, so what's happened is that some of the um, the geological information that came from Gusev Crater has been reanalyzed, uh, and uh, it's looking closely at those data that has led scientists uh, to um, actually to speculate that what we're seeing is the effect of minerals that were formed in the presence of biological organisms. Now, it's not proof. This is not proof. But it is very strongly suggestive of living organisms on Mars, probably 3.8 or 4 billion years ago, a long, long time in the past. Mm. So the details of this are that um, the particular outcrops that they're looking at are things uh, called uh, opaline silicates. Uh, and they form um, basically in the, um, the, the many different ways of forming. But, but the, the way that they, these, they believe these silicates formed on Mars is around a hot spring or a geyser or the fumaroles, the, the things where, um, you know, gases come out of the earth. These vents, um, which are associated with volcanic activity, right, so uh, like a black smoker in the ocean, for example. Yes, that's right. Yeah. The same sort of thing, but but on land. Yeah. Um, and so these um, the, the the rocks that Spirit uh, investigated were actually basaltic rocks, but they they were sort of leached by these these silica deposits, um, and the basically the um, um, sorry, I, I should rephrase that because I think they were leached to form these silica deposits. That mm -hmm. is is one suggestion as to how these uh, these rocks take on the strange shape that they've got. Um, but there is now a more favoured uh, interpretation of that. And it comes because of investigations that have taken place here on Earth in a huge hydrothermal system in northern Chile. It's actually 4,300 metres above sea level. Uh, you can barely breathe when you're there, and I know because I was there last year. Yes. Uh, it's a place called El Tatio, and it is very spectacular. It's a place where there is a lot of geyser activity and all these fumaroles um, emitting stuff from the, from the Earth's uh, depths. 
what has happened is scientists have looked at opaline silica deposits in Chile and they see um, a great similarity to the ones that have been found uh, on the surface of Mars. But the key thing is that these silica material, uh, minerals uh, on the Earth have actually been modified by the presence of microbial life. There are, there are what are called um, biomats, uh, which are kind of like sticky mats, mats of, of bacteria. <laughs> uh, they're called, uh, sometimes they're called biofilms, which is a, probably a better, better description. Biofilms are these, are these mats of material. Mm. And that, um, those, those biofilms actually affect the formation of the minerals. And so all the investigations that these guys have carried out seems to suggest that the ones on Mars have the same origin as the ones on Earth. And that suggests that perhaps they formed in the presence of biofilms. Um, we don't know. There, there is, it's not just that they look the same. Um, there's been a spectral analysis done that suggests the same sort of thing. Uh, and by that, I mean that the light from these uh, silica deposits were has been analysed um, with, to, to, to form the rainbow spectrum and look at uh, look at the signatures of, of different elements in there. And it seems that there is actually um, really interesting evidence that maybe these uh, these two um, places in different places in the solar system form their op opaline silica deposits in the same way. Wow. Uh, how, that, how do we prove it, though? Um, that's a really good question. I think um, what you would like to do is send spirit back to do more measurements but of course spirit is no longer with us in the sense that uh, it's no longer an operating spacecraft and so uh, one possibility is maybe to target uh, Gusev Crater and in particular these deposits with the next um, space probe that goes to Mars and um, that is, well, there are, there are a number of them that are planned. Uh, whether that will happen or not, I don't know. There are these things, uh, the targeting of these uh, landers and these rovers is always a fairly, uh, a fairly intense uh, business in terms of deciding where they're going to go because you want to get one shot at it. Yes, and so, um, you want to get it right. And you want to get it right. That's we've right. had That's so correct. many wrongs over the years. <laughs> yeah, Indeed. It's a, it's a yeah. risky business, but wouldn't it be exciting? I mean, it also adds weight to the possibility, uh, Fred, that, um, we share life with Mars, perhaps. I mean, we know that planets and other heavenly bodies swap rocks and things like that. So it, it, is it feasible to consider that these microbial life forms might have been some kind of swap between the planets? We are here because it was there, for example. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a possibility. Um, mm. It's, um, uh, it, it, it's, you know, the, the idea that we, uh, we can swap living organisms between the planets is one that's well established and we know that the microorganisms can at some level survive in space um, I suppose if ever we do find microorganisms on Mars a DNA test will be the one that um, that actually gives you some sort of evidence uh, as to whether we have a common origin Yes, won't it be exciting and look, we're one step closer by the sound of it and like you said, there's no absolute evidence or proof at the moment but yeah. The numbers are starting to stack up, aren't they? Indeed they are. Yeah, mm. it's all part of the build-up of evidence. Yes, and we just got to hope that there's a committee somewhere that decides, well, okay, we better go and have a look at that and uh, <laughs> send up a probe. Fingers crossed. You're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Zero G and I feel fine.
Fine. Space nuts. Still on Mars, Fred, and we recently saw the arrival of uh, a probe uh, near the Red Planet, which had um, success and failure. I think when we talked about it initially, there was um, declared 80% success because the orbiter is doing its job and arrived safely. The lander, not so much. 300 kilometres an hour landing speed, catastrophic uh, destruction. But 80% successful. And that's because the trace gas orbiter is now starting to get itself where it needs to be and has sent back some pretty amazing pictures. Uh, indeed, that's right. So it, it is, um, it, it's a, a, as you said, a mixed story. Um, let's just concentrate for the moment on the trace gas orbiter itself, which mm -hmm. is definitely the, the successful end. Um, I, I mean, it, it was a success story when uh, trace gas orbiter went into orbit around Mars on the 19th of October, but <clears throat> but it was overshadowed. <clears throat> excuse me, but it was overshadowed by the uh, the disastrous landing of the Schiaparelli lander, which we might comment on again on a, um, on a, again in a minute. What is great about um, trace gas orbiter though is that everything is working perfectly. Uh, there is. Um, uh, currently a process going on which changes the orbit of the spacecraft to put it into a circular orbit um, yeah, because at the moment it's doing a giant oval type of thing and that, getting close and then far away close and far away and that, that, that's correct that's yes, not that, what it's supposed to do well it's supposed to do that but they've got to adjust it to a round orbit indeed that's that's absolutely right so at the moment it's um its closest approach is um Roughly 250 kilometres above the planet's that's, surface. That's but, pretty darn close, isn't it? Yeah, it's fairly close, but I think it's going to get closer when it gets into its uh, into its proper orbit because um, this is the key purpose of this spacecraft. You might guess with a name like Trace Gas Orbiter oh. that what it's doing is uh, analysing the <laughs> analysing the atmosphere of Mars. It does have cameras on board so that it can look at the surface and indeed we've, we've seen some of the pictures that are coming back from the surface uh, or actually from uh, Trace Gas Orbiter as it passes over the surface of Mars. They've got uh, a resolution of about um, three metres per pixel in them at the moment, but they will actually improve as, as time goes on and we'll see more details. But the real um, interest in this space probe is its uh, analysis of the Martian atmosphere. And Mars's atmosphere is a bit like ours, got a lot of carbon dioxide in it, uh, but there, it, there are also um, trace gas components. And by that, we mean things that altogether make about 1% of the, of the planet's um, atmosphere. And it's chemicals like methane, water vapour, nitrogen dioxide, sulphur dioxide, things that are um, relatively rare in, in the atmosphere. And the main, really the main impact of this whole mission is uh, expected to be uh, analysing the methane in Mars's atmosphere. Why because is it there, basically? And say again, Andrew. Why is it there? Why is it there? Exactly. We've talked about this before, and it's really um, the, the whole reason for this part of the mission, that you, you want to uh, try and establish whether the methane that is seen from time to time in Mars's atmosphere, it's not there all the time, um, where it comes from, whether it comes from um, residual volcanic processes, and we know that Mars has had a volcanic past. Um, the, the, the biggest volcano on the solar system is on Mars. It's called Olympus Mons. It stretches 
27 kilometers vertically from its uh, from its base to its uh, to its caldera um, but that has not been active probably for the last three uh, and a half billion years and so it's it's thought that mars is is dead as far as volcanism is concerned but there is still a possibility that there's things going on that occasionally release methane into mars's atmosphere however the, the, the excitement comes from the fact that methane is also produced by living organisms. And in fact, on Earth, most of the methane in the atmosphere comes from living organisms. And I suppose I could say right now, refer to previous story, perhaps. Uh, indeed, that's right. Mm. So the previous story was very much one of uh, uh, looking for past life on Mars. This is one that's looking for present life on Mars and uh, it's why the whole project is called ExoMars, the, the idea that there are living organisms uh, actually still uh, perhaps not on the surface of Mars but below the surface of Mars where they might be shielded from uh, the harsh radiation that the sun beams down on Mars all the time. Um, it kind of leads really into the second part of this story, um, Andrew, because uh, there has been a meeting of the science ministers of the European nations that subscribe to the European Space Agency uh, in the last uh, uh, couple of weeks, which has critically looked at this whole ExoMars project uh, to decide whether to keep on funding it, because, of course, the bottom line with all these things is keeping the money coming in. Yeah. And the good news is that um, they have elected to keep uh, going ahead, keep on track with the project so that uh, the lander that is planned for the early 2020s um, will actually be built and sent to Mars and will, we hope, start drilling into the Martian surface uh, in the early 2020s. Um, that was the, the lander that the Schiaparelli probe was testing the technology for, uh, which it did spectacularly unsuccessfully, mm. although actually they do say, yes, an 80% success level because it got quite a long way down through the atmosphere before it decided it was already on the surface of the planet and switched everything off, and that's really why it hit the surface at all those hundreds of kilometres an hour. Well, you've got to give um, them credit for having a positive attitude. Um, absolutely, <laughs> and it seems that the science minister has shared that, atti uh, that um, attitude. They've uh, agreed to put in the resistance residual funding, uh, uh, if I remember, it's about another 430-odd million euros that are needed to complete the project. And that um, is, you know, it's very good news for the European Space Agency and very good news for those of us who uh, wish to see uh, the discovery of life on Mars actually made <laughs> or not uh, within the next few years. Yeah, well, you know, given everything we've talked about today, there's um, all sorts of little pieces of telltale signs that are starting to just add more and more weight to the probability that there was life on Mars at some stage and may still be life on Mars, which could be the reason for methane, maybe not. But, yeah, there's just so much information gathering together. And I go back 25 years when we just assumed there were other planets in the universe and the only ones we knew about were in our own solar system. And now we've found thousands of the darn things. It stands to reason that life is the next major discovery, the greatest discovery beyond Earth. What a great cliffhanger, yeah. Mm. Watch this space. Yes, well... <laughs> Watch yeah, well, these space that, nuts. That's... We, we do watch space. That's the only place we're going to find it beyond here. Yeah. But, um, you know, I was just driving along today before we recorded this segment and I was just looking around and thinking, 
You know, we're right in the middle of some of the most diverse life forms that could possibly exist between humans right down to microbes, plants, some of the variations in animal that exist on this on this earth. I mean, that's all happening in one place. Mm. So surely, surely it's got to be happening somewhere else in some other way. It's just got to be. You would think so. And um, that, you know, the, the, the big question is, OK, if you all, if you have the conditions right for life to form, does it automatically form? And most scientists, I think, would say that is very likely that if, if the conditions are there, you'll get life triggering. But we don't know that yet. And that's why the discovery of life on one other world beyond the Earth will be such a big thing. Because if, you, if you've if you got life forming twice, and especially if you can prove that it doesn't have the same origin, uh, then it must be everywhere. Yes, indeed. And that will be exciting to learn if we can ever learn it beyond you know, the distances that we are capable of analysing accurately, and that's the big, that's another big challenge. But uh, we'll talk about that another time. Fred, as always, a great pleasure. Thank you. No problem. Good to talk to you, Andrew, and uh, see you next time. Okay, Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory joining us every week on Space Nuts, and don't forget uh, our sister program. Uh, Space Time with Stuart Gary. You can catch that on uh, uh, our podcast platforms as well. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook. We love your questions. We actually got one last week and Fred even answered it. So uh, we we will (laughs) definitely be uh, communicating with you on Facebook if you ever have any questions or thoughts or maybe a topic you'd like us to pursue. We'd love to do that. Uh, So, yeah, send in your requests. Uh, But that's it from us for this week. Thank you so much, and we'll catch you again next time on Space Nuts. Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom, and Stitcher, or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. From Audioboom comes Covert. A new podcast that delves into the murky world of spies, soldiers, and top-secret military operations. I'm Jamie Rennell, and together we'll discover the real stories of history's greatest classified missions, told by the operatives, soldiers, and journalists who experienced it firsthand. Follow Covert on Spotify, or subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite shows.